Well, I'm, uh, I'm really glad that two weeks ago we were able to finish our study in the fifth chapter of John. Thanks to Adam for, uh, for covering for me last week and, and uh, filling the pulpit. Uh, we wrapped up this incredibly important story of the healing of this, this man at the pool of Bethesda, right? A man who had been lame for 38 years of his life before Jesus came by. And so we finished chapter 5, and now it's really good to be in this new space this morning, starting fresh in chapter 6, because today we get to look much, much deeper at a story that we all know really, really well, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And whenever we come to a, a story we think we know well, it's always good to slow down and try to dig a little bit deeper than we think we know. This is one of those stories that I've held close to my heart for a long, long time, because of the way the master performed such a spectacular miracle through his clumsy, clueless disciples. When I left my corporate job 20 plus years ago and I ventured sort of blindly into vocational ministry, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure I had the skills to be a full-time pastor. And although every single week I still feel woefully inadequate to be serving God as I do, by God's grace, I'm, I'm still here. Uh, and you guys are still with me, which I appreciate. But this story has always been, for me, one of a handful of key gospel passages that I've been able to lean into in, when I come to a place in my ministry when I think, I have no idea what to do. And that happens more than you think in ministry, where, where you're presented with a situation and you're like, I really don't know what to do right now. I'm not sure like, if this is even possible. That happens more than you might know. Ultimately, the feeding the 5,000 is an important lesson for all of us because ultimately when we get to that place where we're not sure what we're supposed to do, we've got to depend upon the Lord. We've got to seek his will and then we have to let him work his power through us. So this is a lesson for all of us, not just pastors and elders, that it's about the power and sufficiency of Christ to provide and to meet our needs in ways that sometimes we never could have ever even imagined. And to do so according to his sovereign will through people like you and I, clumsy, clueless disciples. Isn't that true? It's true. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 6 if you're not there yet. John chapter 6 at the very top. There's a number of important things I want to get out right away before we uh, dive into t t today's passage. First, now we've been in this series for a number of months now. Remember that we've been tracking how John describes seven particular miracles in this section of his gospel. He calls them signs, signs, seven of them that prove that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. And so far in the first five chapters, we've seen three of them, three of the seven. Number one was turning the water into wine in the town of Cana at the wedding, right? Number two was the healing of a royal official's son. From 16 miles away, Jesus just speaks the word, and in Capernaum, this young man is healed. Third, we just recently saw the healing of this lame man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Today, sign number four. And next week, sign number five, is we're going to see Jesus literally walk on the surface of the water of the Sea of Galilee. Now, catch this. Today's sign, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle performed by Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. And that obviously tells us something about how important it is. This miracle also is a decisive turning point in Jesus' ministry. His relationship with the crowds that are following him is about to change. 
For the most part, up until this point, Jesus has been going to the people, but now we're going to see him start to withdraw from the crowds. And we'll see why that is as we go along. But in a subtle way, his ministry is shifting from a public ministry to a private ministry because he's more committed than ever to getting quiet time with his disciples. He's going to have to start training these guys because soon, not far down the road, they're going to have to minister without him after the cross, right? So of all the four Gospels, John's account of this miracle is the most simple and straightforward. You got to know that. Compared to the synoptics, okay, when I've used that term before, the synoptics are who? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Compared to those guys, John does provide us with just a few new details in this story, but overall, his account is much shorter and to the point. Here's where John's actually aiming. He's aiming towards later in the chapter when he's going to explain the whole purpose behind this miracle. And he's going to give us what we call the great bread of life discourse. That's where the deeper theological meaning behind this miracle is going to be revealed. And that's where things get really, really interesting. Because by the end of this chapter, many of the people that at this point would have called themselves disciples of Jesus, by the end of this chapter, they are going to completely abandon him and walk away. In this moment, massive numbers of people are clamoring for him But by the end of the chapter, we're going to see most of the people in Galilee reject him. All right, so look at how verse 1 begins. After these things. Have we seen this before? We have. At the very beginning of chapter 5, John used this very same phrase, okay? Opening at chapter 5, he wrote the same thing, this very sort of vague reference to a passing of time without any real specifics. Again, this is very frustrating for historians, but remember what John's trying to do here. He's writing 25 to 30 years after the other three Gospels have been written down and circulated. So he's not out here trying to just repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already done. He is selectively choosing certain events to highlight in a very thematic way. And so for John, it's not so much about about specific time as it is these themes. That's sort of his priority as he goes along. Now, historically, we can piece this together. If you look at a harmony of the Gospels, we can piece together the time frame. When we finished chapter 5, do you remember where Jesus was? He was in Jerusalem, right? The Pool of Bethesda, right? And and then it says, after these things, the question is, well, what things? Let me give you a, a list of all the things that take place As we close chapter 5 and open chapter 6, there's a whole bunch of things, and there's a period of time of months that that happen between these two chapters. So let me give you a list of these things that going from the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. First of all, between then and now, we have two more controversies that have arisen surrounding this big issue with the religious leaders known as the Sabbath. Two more controversies. First of all, Jesus' disciples pick grain on the Sabbath in order to eat, and then later, Jesus heals a withered, the, uh, the withered hand of a man in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and that's going to further alienate him from the religious leaders up in Galilee. Second thing, according to the synoptics, we finally get a list of all 12 disciples. They're all in the fold now, including our man Judas Iscariot, right? That's when you boo and hiss. Okay, like Haman, we boo and we hiss, right. So they're all in the fold now, according to the synoptics. Third, by this time, Jesus has preached everybody's favorite sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This has already happened in that region we know as Tabgah, uh, just off the, north, uh, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. 
Fourth, we have this beautiful story of the healing of a centurion's servant. And more importantly, in that story, we receive this remarkable faith from a man who is both a Gentile and, of all things, a Roman soldier. A man whose faith is so shocking that Jesus says, not even in Israel have I seen such great faith. Fifth, we read that Jesus has begun to raise the dead. First, a a widow's son in the town of Nine, which is not far from, from Nazareth. Sixth, we know that during this period, John the Baptist has now been executed by Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, the ruler of that region in the north. Seventh, Jesus has already calmed a storm. We know that story, right? While the boat is on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, proving that he now, he's even showing them that he has control and power over the elements of nature itself. Eighth, Jesus has driven out a legion of demons who had possessed a man in the territory we know as the Gerasenes. And then ninth and tenth, in a single day, Jesus does two more miracles. First, for a woman who had a chronic bleeding problem. Remember, she simply touched his garment by faith and was healed. And then later that day, he raised from the dead the young daughter of a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus. Now, with all those things happening within a period of months and all within the same general area of Galilee, you can imagine how popular Jesus has become at this point how word about him is spread all over the place. So by the time we get to our text for this morning, he is a phenomenon. Word is spread all over northern Israel, and we're going to see huge crowds following him. In fact, this is why the crowd that he feeds in our story today is so big, because he's a phenomenon. Everybody is talking about Jesus. That's also why we're going to see him now start to withdraw from the people. Because why? Because just as we saw before, he knows the motivations of the hearts of the people in the crowd. He knows what's really going on. Now, one last thing that we have to mention before we dive in. Prior to this story in John 6, all three of the synoptic gospel writers tell us that Jesus sent his 12 out on something, I guess we'd call it a trainee session, a ministry tour, to go out among all the cities and towns of Galilee. He sends them out in pairs. Do you remember that story? And he gives them authority in his name to heal people and to cast out demons. By this time, they've come back. They've returned, probably to Capernaum, and they've reported the spectacular results. Everybody is talking about healings in the name of Jesus. And again, he's a sensation all over Galilee, and now he and the 12 are about to be completely overrun and overwhelmed by the size of the crowd. So look back at verse 1. Does that help set the stage? Because John's really hard. You go from Jerusalem chapter 5 to this, you're like, Whoa, what just happened? That's why, that's why history matters, people. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag history matters. All right. Now, you know if I had a screen up here, I'd have a list of all those things, but you're just going to have to trust me on this. All right. After these things, Jesus went away or crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, anybody notice on your band app this morning, there's a map. I'll take a drink and wait for you to get there. Both in the members and the all church, if you have the band app, open it up, share it with somebody. Um, again, at some point soon, we're going to have our projection up here. It's coming. We're working on all the, the details for that, but for now, you have a band app there. So there's a map of Galilee there. So just to get you oriented, you should see on the map, first of all, the Sea of Galilee. It's outlined in blue, big blue body of water, right? By the way, is the Sea of Galilee a sea? No, it's just a big lake. 
just a big lake, okay? It's outlined in blue. You see a couple key cities there in Galilee. You see there's a purple dot. That's where Cana is. We've already seen a number of things take place in Cana. And just to the south of Cana in orange is Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And all those yellow dots that you see on there represent the location of events I just described. Things that have happened between chapter 5 and chapter 6. As you can see, they're all sort of concentrated in this relatively small area of Galilee. If you've been to the land, you know it's not that big, right? Relatively small region. And here in verse 1, we now read that Jesus and the disciples get in a boat and they leave the northwest shore of the lake, probably from Capernaum, which is that green dot, okay? And they cross over to the northeastern shore of the lake. And according to Luke, he's the only one that mentions this, they end up in the, in the town of Bethsaida, that red dot you see there on the map. Got it? That's about a five-mile trip in the boat from Capernaum to Bethsaida. So, the whole, so there you go. So you can see the little white arrow and all that stuff, right? Okay, just visualize that. Look, the whole reason they do this, you have to understand this, the whole reason they get in the boat and they go away is to what? To get some rest. Okay, how many of you guys have been in ministry and you're like, I am burned out? I need a retreat. I need some time off. That's what's going on here. They've just come back from this, this training tour of ministry, this frantic pace of ministry that they've been doing, and these guys need a break. Matthew tells us that it was Jesus' intention to withdraw to a, quote, secluded place. But look what happens in verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now that is an understatement. When it says large crowd, we're going to find out later, this is 15, 20,000 people, maybe more. That's a big crowd. That's a massive number of people, especially for the ancient world. And John tells us why right there in verse 2. Because they've been paying attention to what's been going on in their area in Galilee. And guys, nothing draws people out more than the spectacle of a healing. Every one of you, if you heard there was some guy healing in Santa Clarita, You'd be there because we want to see these types of things, right? This is what gets people out. Some of the people flocking out to see him, they want to get healed, but there's also the looky-loos, right? The ones that just want to get out there and see it happen. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that the crowds actually saw Jesus and the 12 get in the boat and start to sail. So what did they do? They start running along the shore. They're just, they're just going to try to keep up with the boat because they want to be first in line when he arrives. They want to find out where he's going to dock and be first in line. And no doubt, as they ran along the shore, as they kept their eye on the boat, other people were going, what's happening? <laughs> what's going on? Where are you going? And you can see the crowd sort of swelling as they sail from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Remember, the guys, are, they're trying to get away for a retreat, and it's not working out well. Now, the, the casual observer might look at this and go, well, this is a good problem, right? The more people, the better. But look, John reports here in verse 2 that there's a problem. Always remember, large crowds, large crowds do not always guarantee that things are good or healthy. Large crowds are not the determining factor. The folks chasing after Jesus are excited by the miracles, but it seems only for that reason. There's nothing deeper going on, nothing spiritual going on here that John notes. We saw the same thing back in chapter 2. Remember, John said, many believed in his name as they observed his signs, which he was doing. It was a superficial belief because he adds, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. 
He knew what was going on in their hearts. So Jesus knows the motivations of the heart of this crowd. Now, the synoptics report that many people arrived in Bethsaida even before the boat got there. (laughs) They're waiting for him on the shore like, come on, right? And you can see the sick and lame people, they're lining up in the front, right? They're looking to get healed. So what would you have done if you were one of the 12? It's retreat time. I'm trying to get away, and I show up at the retreat site, and there's more needy people. Welcome to ministry, right? It never actually stops. But according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus isn't frustrated or angry at all. In fact, they report that he felt compassion for the people in the crowd, the people waiting there. He felt compassion. Mark says he began to teach them many things. Luke adds that Jesus began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Matthew simply says he healed their sick. So Jesus stops. Plans are changed. No retreat right this second. There's people that need him. He has compassion. What an amazing thing. I would would say, you know, the Lord had every right to say, look, guys, back off for a while. Me and my guys, we need some space. But that's not what he does. He's deeply moved by their physical suffering. And even though he knows the motivation of their hearts, he's still moved to take the time to teach them and to heal in spite of all of that. Now look at verse 3. John reports that at some point in the late afternoon, Jesus did get a chance to separate himself from the crowds, and I'm guessing he's exhausted, right? He's a man. He suffered from from fatigue like any of us. He's healing, he's teaching, he's exhausted, and he gets away. Verse 3 says, he went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, is that a particular mountain? Probably not. If you've been to the land, you know this area around Bethsaida has those sharp, high cliffs right behind it, what we call the Golan Heights. Right? That's that, that land between Israel and Syria that the Israelis won in the 1967 war. It's still a disputed territory, but there's all those cliffs back there. So he probably just retreated up to the, one of those hillside cliffs, and he sat down there with his closest friends to try to refresh and recharge. Let's keep going. Look at verse 4. Now, this is a simple chronological marker, but it does have deep theological meaning, only I'm going to save that for later because it comes into play later on. Let's read through verse 5. Verse 4 says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes, after looking up and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, okay, so he's got a little of alone time, but here comes the crowd again, right? Here come the needy. He says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, two questions come to mind when I read that. First of all, why does Jesus feel responsible to feed everybody? And secondly, why does he specifically challenge Philip? Well, first of all, I think Jesus feels the responsibility to care for these people because he'd already spent all day with them, right? He'd become their teacher, and as such, he'd assumed a position of authority, and with authority becomes responsibility. So he feels that responsibility to take care of their physical needs. Why Philip? We found out in chapter 1, where is Philip from? From Bethsaida. So he is in his backyard at this point. So it's as if Jesus looks at him, poor guy, and says, all right, local guy, you see the size of the crowd coming? What you got? What's your plan? Is there a place around here where we can go out and buy enough bread for all of them? You're the local guy, you tell me. Oh, poor Philip, right? That's a lot of bread. Verse 6, 
But he was saying this only to test Philip, for he himself knew what he intended to do. So this is one of those moments where you try to put yourself in some ancient sandals to try to understand what Philip is going through here. How many of you guys think this would have been a stressful situation? Yeah, super stressful situation. Poor Philip. What do you do now? You're in this remote location and you've got this massive crowd and Jesus looks at you and says, how are you going to fix this? Yikes. I mean, I've been in some pretty tough ministry spots. Some of you guys have been as well. This is a whole nother level. This is impossible, right? But Jesus, he's not stressed at all. He knows exactly what's about to happen. He is not, get this now, he's not testing his guys so that they'll stumble into sin. What he wants to do is to challenge them and train them. Again, he's looking down the road. They're going to have to minister without him soon. So he's going to train them through this process. In ministry, we call this a twofer. Number one, the, the physical needs get met. That's important. But number two, in the process of meeting the physical need, you train people, you equip them to do the ministry. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, honestly, in my opinion, and I can't prove this, I'm, I think Jesus wants them to twist in the wind just a little bit, to sort of agonize for just a minute so that they'll come to the right conclusion. What's the right conclusion that these guys should understand at this point? That they don't have the resources to fix this. That's what he wants them to get to that point. They're going to have to depend on him. And this is a great lesson for all of us, right? Because so often we come to the end of ourselves and then we turn to the Lord, right? There's a lesson here for all of us. Now, John doesn't report this, but the other gospel writers tell us that the disciples did come up with a solution in this moment. And it wasn't to depend on Jesus. The gospel writers tell us, in effect, all right, Lord, we got nothing. So just send the people away. <laughs> they... <laughs> Disperse them. Let them fend for themselves. We can't fix this. That's what the other gospel writers tell us. And listen, that doesn't sound like a bad idea to me. I mean, right? Let, sometimes we get so high and mighty, like, oh, we would have done better. Right? I think we all would have said that. Jesus, look, there's 20,000 people. Just, just tell them to go back to their villages. They'll find something to eat. I think we all would have done something like this. But according to the synoptics, Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He looks at them and says, no, 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 they don't need to leave. You feed them. Whew, like mic drop time, right? You feed them. Can you imagine? Now, in that moment, it would have been great if Philip and the other guys responded in a super godly fashion. If they just said something like, okay, Lord, well, I've seen you turn water into wine. And I've seen you heal a child from a distance. And I've seen you you know, help a lame man suddenly stand up and walk, so I'm absolutely confident that you could provide all the bread that these people need. Is that what they do? No. Of course they don't respond that way. And again, we probably wouldn't have done any better. Instead, what Philip does is he starts calculating. Look at verse 7. Philip's like a math teacher. I know we have a couple of them here, right? Carly. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them, for each to even receive just a little bit. You get a sense here that he looked at the crowd, he did this quick number thing in his head, and he's like, uh, okay, well, here's the dollar figure. If I'm going to fix this, here's the dollar figure. How much would it cost to give every person just a couple of bites of food to sort of carry them over? Now, one denarii, one denarius was a day's pay. 
for a common workman in that time. So 200 denarii is about eight months' worth of pay. Eight months for the average worker in Israel. If you do the calculation, I did the math last night. I know it's not my strong suit. Somebody will correct me. But if you look at the average salary of a person living where we live today, basically what Philip is saying is it would take about $45,000 to give everybody here a happy meal. That's how big the crowd is. You got to understand the picture here. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of food. And by the way, even if they had this kind of money, which they didn't, like you don't run down to the supermarket in Bethsaida. You don't call DoorDash, right? There's no Trader Joe's in Bethsaida that they could run to and buy $45,000 worth of food. Poor Philip. Physically, he's assessed the situation correctly, but spiritually, he's blind as a bat. What's the one thing he's missing? Jesus is right there. He, the one thing he didn't take into account was the fact that Jesus was right there and that's all he needed. Man. So evening is coming and the folks are got to be starving and these guys still haven't solved the problem. And I picture them, they're looking at each other like, what do we do? And, and I picture this total, this like uncomfortable silence and Jesus is not bailing them out yet. He's just like, right? There's this uncomfortable silence, and then Andrew, of all guys, blurts out in verse 9, hey, there's a boy here. He's got some bread and some fish. <laughs> Five flat loaves of barley bread and, and two little tilapias <laughs> from the Sea of Galilee. But then he says, look, but what are these for so many people? Seriously, Andrew? And again, I can't prove this from the text. I try my best to not go outside the bounds, but to lift the story off the page. I picture all the disciples rolling their eyes like, oh, good idea, Andrew. <laughs> really good idea, man. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Seriously? But now comes the good news. Now comes the saving news. Jesus has a plan, and he takes over in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people recline. I mean, I picture the disciples going, oh, thank the Lord. He's taking over. This is good. Have the people recline. In other words, go ahead, have them sit down. John says there was plenty of grass in this place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. By the way, we'll come back to that number a little bit later because I think, I think John has a reason for mentioning just the men in that statement. Okay, I think there's a reason for it. But obviously, there would have been women and children there as well. That's why... You know, scholars say it would have been, you know, two or three times that, maybe four times that, 15 to 20,000 people. But Jesus is as calm as can be. Just tell them to sit down and relax, he says. Now, Mark gives us an extra detail, a, a, an organizational principle. Mark says that Jesus instructed them to organize the crowd into hundreds and fifties so that the distribution of the food would go better. That's a good ministry principle as well. Not chaotic and random, but plan things out. Amen. Good. And so look what happens in verse 11. Jesus then takes the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were sitting down, reclining. Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. Guys, that is the whole description of John's miracle there. Super simple and to the point. That's all John describes here. Notice there's no promise or announcement from Jesus. Hey, I'm about to do a miracle. Everybody pay attention. 
None of that. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. Just like when he changed the water into wine, right? He's doing it for his audience. Now, the word of this is going to grow, but he's not trying to uh, bring attention to himself just yet. Why? Jesus is filled with compassion here. He's looking to meet their physical need. So he takes these barley loaves, by the way, which was the the cheapest brand of of, of bread in the whole land. This was the, the poor man's bread. This is nothing fancy. He takes the loaves and the two fish. He thanks his father. What a great principle here. Even this meager little bit of resources, Jesus is thankful for it. And he thanks his father. And what does he do? He begins to pass out food. So how does this happen? Where does the miracle happen and how does it take place? Well, scholars have looked at this like crazy. It appears that the miracle takes place in, not in the distribution of the food, but in Jesus' hands. That's where it's taking place. Mark and Luke use very precise language here. This is very important. They write, Jesus kept giving. And it's written in the imperfect tense, meaning that it's continual. Jesus kept giving bread and fish to the disciples over and over and over again. He would break off pieces, give them to the disciples. They would distribute it. When they came back, there was another basket full. Jesus is doing this with his own hands. The food just keeps coming. Now, exactly how that happened, none of the gospel writers are even going to try to describe it. And isn't that wisdom, to try to, to leave the indescribable undescribed? That's basically what they're doing here. So much food is generated that John reports that everybody, all 20,000 or so, ate as much as they wanted. Couldn't eat another bite. You ever gotten to that point, Thanksgiving? Cannot eat another bite. Fully satisfied. This isn't a rationed meal. It's everything that they could want. That's amazing. Think about how much food that is. Now, it probably comes as no surprise that this particular sign has been attacked and mocked by secularists of our day, people who outright reject the possibility that miracles can ever, ever happen. This one gets particular scrutiny because it's so baffling. But keep this in mind. This miracle involves the power of creation itself. This is creation ex nihilo, right? Making something material from nothing. Making something material from what we would say thin air. That's pretty spectacular. But don't forget, we have eyewitness accounts of this. Four of them. Four eyewitness accounts that this actually happened. Secondly, if you believe what John has already said about Jesus, that he's the creator of heaven and earth, then guess what? This miracle is very digestible, isn't it? I mean, again, if you believe John 1, John 6 is really not that hard. The fact is, every single day, miracles surround us. Every day. Every single day. And by the way, how hard would it be for the one who spoke the entire universe into existence to create a bunch of meals for for a large crowd? Not hard at all, right? But miracles are all around us every day. People simply take them for granted, don't they? Every single day. Or we attribute them to some undirected natural process, all the while people have no rational explanation for how that nature came into being in the first place, or how it gets sustained day to day, we all just take it for granted. The fact is the attack dogs of scientific materialism engage in religious faith as much, if not more, than you and I do. Because they don't have rational answers for how any of this came to be or how it gets sustained every single day. They have more faith than we do. 
which makes their criticism and their mocking of this type of relatively simple miracle very, very hypocritical. Divine power is everywhere to be seen, folks. Every single place that we look, from the telescope to the microscope, right? From this vast universe that continues to blow our minds to the very tiniest atom. It's all miraculous, right? It may be unusual and rare to see something like the feeding of the 5,000, but given the claims about who Jesus is, there's absolutely nothing implausible about the account. It was Augustine who talked about this. He said, it's not, that, it's not that we're blown away by miracles, it's just we're blown away by rare things that we personally rarely see, right? They happen all the time, but we don't often get to look at them ourselves, and so we see something like this, and we go, oh, that's not possible. Now miracles are all around us all the time. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the miracles in the Gospels are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. I love that quote. And by the way, after feeding 20,000 people, there's still food left over. That's amazing. Look at verse 12. And when they, the crowd, had eaten their fill, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. Nothing wasted. What an important principle, by the way, right? We shouldn't waste things. When God provides, we shouldn't waste it. We should use it to his glory, right? So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. Why 12? A lot of scholarship on this. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, right? There's, there's clearly meaning in this. They filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Here's the key. Now look at the reaction of the people in verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign, there's John's language, right? The sign. When they saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, we've discussed this idea of the prophet several times in our series so far. It comes from Deuteronomy 18, right? Where Moses says to the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says. From among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. So Moses prophesies the coming of a great prophet in the same vein as himself. So when the people see this miracle, this unthinkable power of creation ex nihilo in this miraculous meal, it makes sense where their minds would be drawn to, to prophecy, and to identify that maybe this is the new Moses. This is the guy we're supposed to follow. And think of all the parallels in these stories between Jesus and Moses. Remember, the Passover is hanging in the air, right? What's the Passover about? The slaughter of a lamb, a Passover lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus has just gone up onto a mountain, right? Just as Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive God's law. And like God providing manna to the Israelites in the wilderness, now Jesus has provided bread to these people in a very remote location. So all the signs of Jesus being the prophet are sitting here in this story. But you have to know this. Ultimately, John is going to tell us that Jesus is not just a new Moses, but he's a much greater prophet who is himself the bread of life and who is himself the Passover lamb. That's going to come through as we finish the rest of this chapter. But that's what's on the mind of these people. Can you blame them? Now, with these thoughts of a new Moses hanging in the air, Jesus becomes aware of something very sinister taking place among the crowd. He's concerned about this. Keep in mind... The Passover was the most intensely patriotic time 
for the Jews. Okay, this is filled with Jewish nationalism. And now the people see Jesus wielding this power of creation and all kinds of thoughts come into their heads. They're, I mean, they're, they're worked up with a, a nationalistic zeal. Well, what if we could harness this power? What if we could harness Jesus' power and engage in a war with Rome? Finally, throw off the yoke of oppression. This is the guy that can lead us. Look at verse 15. So Jesus, aware or perceiving that they now intended to come and take him by force to make him king. Wow. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So here's why I think John mentions 5,000 men only. It's a subtle reference to a growing militia. He's referring to, hey, 5,000 men who take up arms, they can do some damage, can't they? There's 5,000 men there, 5,000 potential soldiers that could rise up against Rome in this moment. This is a serious thing. But Jesus knows better, right? Jesus knows the type, of the, the type of king that these people are looking for would only lead the people into a slaughter, right? And, and history bears this out. That's exactly what happened every time the Jews raised up in revolution with their arms, with their militias, they got slaughtered by the Romans. Hmm. Fact is, these people have been fed physically, but they haven't changed spiritually. That, that's what verse 15 really tells us. Their bellies were full, but they had no change in their hearts. For them to have a king would only be a physical thing, right? It meant freedom. It meant a belly full of food. But they've completely failed to see the spiritual meaning behind this miracle. And to Jesus, the prospect of now becoming a king over an earthly kingdom is a lie from the pit of hell. He decisively rejects it, and he withdraws once again from the people. Like, nope. And he goes away up on the mountain to be alone. Now, interestingly, we find out from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that something else took place here. They tell us that immediately when this happens, Jesus tells his guys, get back on the boat. Get back on the boat and get back to Capernaum immediately. And, and scholars have looked at it and said, what's probably going on here is Jesus is now concerned for his 12. That first of all, they might get swept up into this nationalistic fervor, or they might try to take his, his disciples by force and force them to lead some type of militia. Whatever is going on here, Jesus wants them out of there as quickly as possible. So verse 15 tells us that it got really ugly really fast at the end of this story. Okay. So what are the life lessons we learn from this? What do we take from this story? Because it's, I mean, it's a really cool historical narrative, right? And there's a lot of interesting detail in here, but what does it mean to us? Well, first of all, before I go there, let me first challenge your heart in this way. Are you anything like those in the crowd that day? Check your heart for a second. Are you anything like the people that were there that day in the crowd? Here's what I mean by that. It is so easy for us to stand back and criticize them, to criticize these people because they love Jesus only for meeting their physical need. But how many of us fall into that same subtle trap when we worship Jesus? It's a really important question to ask yourself. Is there any hint in us that we have fallen captive to a form of a prosperity gospel where we're really looking to Jesus to just bless us? That's all we want. Just, Lord, make my life better and easier. And you know what, God? As long as you continue to give me good things and I'm happy, well, then I'm on fire for you, Lord. But when things get hard, 
When things get hard, that's when I get cool and I get distant and I get disconnected. When things are a struggle, because that's it's not the Jesus I want. I don't want to worship the Jesus who, who puts me through trials. That's not what I signed up for. Be careful that you're not subtly like this crowd on this day. It's easy for us to slip into that mindset, to see our worship of Jesus ebb and flow based solely on what he can do for me and not for who he is, right? Let us not put Jesus in a box of our own creation, subtly demanding that he provide for me and bless me while not also accepting the fact that he tests me and he disciplines me. That's the Jesus in the story. Now, the most obvious application of the story is very simple. God is able to supply all of our needs beyond what we can even imagine. Everybody knows this application, right? He is able to supply our needs beyond what we can even... I mean, who would have thought that Jesus was just going to feed the people this way? Not one of those 12 guys would have said, oh, I know what Jesus is going to do. I've got this figured out. No. And oftentimes we have no idea how God is going to work. We are so much like the disciples. We see impossibilities before us, And what happens to us? We become confused. We become disheartened. We get stressed out. Our trust flies right out the window when we bump up against things like this, right? But when God wills something, when God says, I will do this, he always supplies the power and the means to make it happen. And he does it through simple people like us, his servants. Our role in the process of accomplishing God's works is so very simple. We make it hard, don't we? But it's really quite simple. We trust and we start walking, right? And we adjust along the way. Our goal is to align our will with his, to see where he's working and then get on his agenda. We trust and we walk because the Lord always ministers through our weakness, doesn't he? God's not interested. If you think you're strong and you're filled with pride and, and, and you're arrogant, and you're thinking, God should pick me to do all this stuff. Nah, he works through weakness, right? He chooses the humble to work through. Look at the boy in this story. I know Jesus is always the hero of every story in the Bible, but come on, look at this boy. He's my hero. He's like, I got some food. <laughs> I got a few things. You, could this help? Man, that's really, really amazing, right? I mean, I, I don't think he gets the attention he deserves. He, he brings his meager resources to Jesus, and look what God does with it. Look what he does through weakness and through humility with a simple, willing heart. And the fact is, God delights in doing the unexpected in order to show his glory to us, his servants. So when we face difficulties and we hit roadblocks, we should be careful not to limit what God might do Now, we don't demand or presume that he's always going to move in the way that we want him to, but we certainly shouldn't deny the possibility that he will. It's finding that balance, right? We don't presume, Lord, this is the way you should do this, but man, you know what, God, if you want to do that, I'm all arms. Let's do this. But it depends on his will. Listen, the same Jesus that performed this awesome miracle dwells within you, believer, The same power that that did this miracle dwells in you by his spirit. The same Jesus who did this miracle, creation from nothing, cares for you and provides for you. He says to you that he will never leave you and never forsake you. The same Jesus promises that his strength in you is sufficient to do everything that he wants to do. 
through your life. The one who fed 20,000 people with a few scraps of food does not lack any power to accomplish his will through every single believer in this room. According to his will, nothing is impossible, nothing is too hard. We forget that sometimes, right? We, we fall into a materialistic mindset very easily. Like, I can't see how that could happen. And we limit what God might do. Again, we don't presume that he's going to do it, but boy, we ought to be open to the possibility because nothing's impossible with him. And as you consider those truths, remember this principle as well. We often claim the power of this story only when it comes to physical things, right? Like like heal an illness or help me pay my bills or physical things like that. But don't miss what the crowd missed that day. What about the spiritual component? Can God do anything he wants spiritually in you? Absolutely. How is God working right now to meet your deeper need? Not just your bills, but your heart. How is he working to to draw you deeper into a relationship with him? How is he drawing you closer to himself? How is he teaching you right now? How is he testing you right now? How is God training you for ministry to other people? Have you limited him with that? Like, oh, I'm not, I just, ah, I can't do those things. Then you've missed the point of this story. If God wills to do it through you, physically, spiritually, he can accomplish it. Do not limit him. Amen? Second application. I'm almost done. God uses servants to carry out his plans. That seems really obvious, but this story is pretty amazing. Could Jesus not have just prayed and just bread fell from heaven? Right? So Moses did in the wilderness, right? Jesus could have just called it down and it would have come down and everybody would have fed and they would have seen his glory. But what does he do? He invites people into the process. He invites people like us. He uses that young boy and his simple lunch Then he uses his clueless disciples. Praise him for that. So are you making yourself available to Jesus in this season of your life to work through you, to do his works through you? Do you have open hands for that? How might God use you to carry out his purposes here in this local church right now? Have you volunteered? Have you put yourself out there to say, I don't know if I can do this, but I know who God is. I know who Jesus is. And if he wants to do it through me, I'm willing. That's really all he wants, right? On the heels of that, a final application. How is your compassion meter? How is your compassion meter in your life right now? Look again at Jesus' example. He's trying to, to get away, to go to a secluded place to be with his disciples. That's a good and godly thing, right? But then circumstances change. A needy crowd is waiting for him honestly now. And when I read this, I'm like, it's such a, just a punch in my own face. I would have been angry and frustrated because I'm a, how many of you guys are planners? Like I'm going to a retreat. Do not bother me. Yeah. But our compassion should overwhelm that. Our compassion should overrule that. Most of the time ministry to others is not convenient and it's not easy either. And yes, sometimes compassion for others can be a chore. It's a decision of the will that we have to make to die for ourselves and to put the needs of others before our own. But everyone in this room who claims to know Christ is a minister of the gospel. So check your compassion meter. God will give it to you, by the way, if you ask. 
Tanny will tell you that when I... When God was first, I believe, calling me to ministry many, many years ago, I struggled with people, big time. I just didn't like people that much. They frustrated me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm being honest, right? They just, Tanny will tell you the story. And, and a mentor of mine said, well, have you actually asked God to overcome that? Hmm, I never thought about that. <laughs> and so I started praying. God changed my heart. It, that Jeff back then would have said, there's no way. There's no way I can be in ministry. I don't like people that much. But that man asked me one day, will you start praying about it? Oh, God changed my heart for people. How's your compassion meter? Have you asked Jesus to, to adjust that in your life so that you put people over other things? What an example we have in Jesus here. But not just an example. Remember, he's the source of power for us to have compassion and to do ministry for other people. Listen, I hope you can see now why this story is so important and why this story has always meant so much to me as a pastor. It really is a great source of encouragement for all of us as modern-day disciples. May the Lord grant us greater faith and trust in Him and in His power to do what He wants to do in and through us. And may we have open hands. May we, up, may we come to the throne of grace and ask the Lord to change our hearts and to, to give us the works to do for his glory, not for ours, but humbly for his glory. Amen? It's good stuff. Next week, we get to see him walk on the water. It's going to be cool. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing story, for the example we have. But more than that, Lord, the fact that you empower us to do these amazing works far beyond what we can even imagine. May we have open hands to receive from you. May we have open hearts, Lord, to have you change us from within, to transform us into compassionate servants who seek to love others. God, thank you for a chance once again to gather here this morning and to sing praises to you. May we do that this morning with pure hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen.